0: Amen. There's just something amazing about singing that song in there. I I mean, all of those songs, the energy that comes with it, um, you know, just it brings us into worship. So just thank you guys for for leading us into worship here. It's amazing that God has gifted people in this way. Um, Anyways, I'm Alex, um, and I'm going to be teaching today. So Derek's taking the day off of that. um, And uh, yeah, so let's jump into it here. So, have you guys ever seen these, these new virtual reality headsets that people are getting now? They're, you know, you put them over your face, and you've got basically a whole new world that you're seeing, right, that's different than, than what everybody else outside you is seeing, right? Or you see people playing uh, the Pokemon Go on their phone, you know? They're, they're looking at the world through their phone, and they're seeing different things than we are seeing, right? Um, but what if... You know, you try to live your life that way. I was going to start this off with a video actually of, they have videos of this, of people, they call it VR fails. And it's people are wearing the headset, right? And they think they're doing one thing, but really they're just running into a wall, you know? But I couldn't show it because, well, they would run into the wall and it would be followed by language that we just don't use here. But, uh, so I left that out. But, you know, what if you tried to live your life in this virtual reality? You know, this, it wouldn't work. Right? You'd have people driving cars down the road, and they'd actually just be running off into buildings. People would be walking off cliffs, which, funny enough, well, not really funny, but actually happened with the Pokemon Go. There was somebody trying to catch some Pokemon on this cliff side and they just went off the cliff. They did survive. I checked the news story. They did survive. But, you know, it just it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't work, right? But, uh, or maybe this other example would work. I don't know if it's just my kids that do this, but... For some reason, our kids always had this obsession with like putting a box or a towel or something like that over their head and then running around. Um, I don't know if your kids did that, but uh, you know, you tell them all the time, like, "Don't do this. This is a bad idea." And no matter how many times you tell them that, they just there's something fun about it. Until one day, the world smacks them in the face, literally. You know, they go running into the wall or running into the bedpost. You know, it just doesn't work. And so. We're going to look today at, you know, God designed this world to work in a certain way. He designed it to function in particular ways that are best for us and best for everyone around us. And he gave us those instructions. And so we're going to look today at how does God want us to live? What is this reality? You know, he wants to help us take the the virtual reality goggles off and and live the way that he has called us to. So we're going to be in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. So this is Paul writing here. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has has really explained what is reality. Um, Things that maybe we wouldn't be privy to if, if... God didn't explain it to us. He gives us that information in 1 through 3. And then 4 through 6 is really the instructions on, okay, now that you know what reality is, how do we live in it? So we've got Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, even to, speak of the dark, uh, even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this, this morning with um, hearts that long to know you. God, to know what pleases you. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of thanksgiving, hearts that long to live in this reality that you have given us, and to uh, to know you more and more each day. God, just be with us as we go through these words today, and um, God, I pray that uh, we would walk out of here with thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're going through 14 verses, right? So. Bit of a chunk here we're going through, but you'll see a couple themes that really run through this. You're going to see thankfulness and this idea of a reality. So you're going to see Paul talk about this a lot as we go through there. So as we get into it, Paul starts off with, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Simple instruction, right? Just be like God, you know? Simple, right? (laughs) Not so much, right? So he's not talking about, you know, being this all-powerful figure like God. He's talking about God's morality. He's talking about God's holiness, his righteousness. He's, He's saying be perfect just as God is perfect. He's saying be perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. Do not sin ever. No thought, no action, no motive. Do not sin in anything. This is crazy, right? It's kind of a ludicrous idea. But he follows it up and, and really gives the foundation of it with as beloved children. So you've got this crazy idea of just be like God. That's all you have to do. Just be like God. And you're thinking to yourself, um, that's insane. I can't do that. Right? But then he follows it up with the foundation of, but you're a child of God. And what we need to realize is that is just as crazy, the idea of you being a child of the perfect, righteous, holy God. And so that's the foundation. That's the reality that we need to recognize when God tells us, be perfect. And we go, "Eh, I can't really do that. God says, well, yeah, but you're my child. You know, you shouldn't be able to do that. So that's the reality that we focus on. That's Paul again saying, look at this. Look at this truth right here. This is what's going to get you through. And then he follows that with, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And this is, again, a a crazy idea. We're supposed to love the same way that Jesus loved? I I, I can't do that. Not on my own. This is a, a standard that is just way beyond anything that I could ever meet. But then he gives us the foundation again. It's as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. We go back again to the truth of who we are and who God is. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because Jesus loved us first. There was, uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Spurgeon or Edwards, but, but he had somebody come to him one time, and he said, this person said to him, yeah, I, I just really struggle with this idea that, that God loves me. I don't, I don't know how he could love me. And, and he responds, well, I, Yeah, I don't struggle with that at all, actually. And he said, he went to that verse, and he says, I wouldn't be able to love a single person if God didn't first love me. And so we remember that truth that God first loved us and therefore we love others. And we do it in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus is our example in this. You know, we've been working with this definition of truth of um, it's doing what's best for the other person when they least deserve it at great personal cost. And that's a great definition because it really wraps up what Jesus did. You know, it's doing what's best for the other person. Jesus bought us salvation. He, get, he brought us adoption. We are a part of God's family because of what Jesus did. At great personal cost. Or, sorry, I got it out of, out of order there. It's doing what's right for the other person when they least deserve it. We deserved hell. We deserved the ultimate opposite of what's best for us, right? And then at great personal cost, Jesus went to the cross. So you see all three of these categories right here. Jesus went to the ultimate in each one of these for us. And that's how we are called to love, because he loved us. And this is the reality that we find ourselves in. This is the reality God designed. The first point on your handout says, when we deny ourselves and live for everyone else around us, we affirm God's design for humanity. this is how we're supposed to live. This is the way the world was meant to function, and this is the way it will function best. When we, each one of us, are living for everybody else around us because we are a beloved child and because Jesus loved us first. In verses three and four, Paul goes on. He kind of goes from this really high level of, uh, you know, be an imitator of God, love as Jesus loved. And some more specifics here. We go into, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So he gives us six things to avoid six sins that we are to walk away from. And he gives us one thing to fix all of them. The first one, he talks about sexual immorality. This is the Greek word pornea, which you know, the interesting thing about that is not so much the, the word that we get from that, the pornography. It's where the word pornea actually derives from. It derives from a Greek word, pernao, which means to sell off. So what he's saying with sexual immorality is you are, you are literally selling yourself off to the world. You're selling yourself cheap to this world around us. So this is you know anything that's really outside of marriage, of outside the marriage of a man and a woman. This is pornography. This is homosexuality. This is sex outside of marriage. But God designed the world, again, with sex to be used in a certain way. Sex is to be celebrated and enjoyed within marriage. And yet we cheapen it. We cheapen sex when we go outside of God's design for it. That's what that sexual immorality word is really communicating. We're cheapening this great gift that God has given us. Um, and I want to take it even a little bit further than that. You know, we can say, yeah, sex is great and to be enjoyed within marriage, but, but that, kind of, that doesn't give us the full picture because even outside of, of marriage, you, know, a single person, in their abstinence, they communicate how great sex is. Abstinence can communicate the greatness of something just as well as the, the actual act of it. Think about fasting, you know I, So basically, my love language is pumpkin pie. Um, they, they actually missed that when they wrote the book, but uh, you know I, I love pumpkin pie, right? But if I were to have pumpkin pie every single day, It wouldn't be as great a thing. It'd just be kind of the everyday thing. I get to, I mean, I'd still like it, but I might get over it at some point, I don't know. But (laughs) either way, the abstinence of it, the the removal from it makes that thing so much greater. The removal of yourself from something communicates, yes, yes, this is a great thing, but I am not gonna be ruled by it because there's something still greater. And so if we wanna live in reality, We recognize that sex was designed to be amazing in a certain realm. Sex was designed by God to communicate something within marriage. It goes beyond just two people coming together as a team. When In Genesis, it talks about it. It says the man and woman became one flesh. And if you look at that throughout Scripture, it was not the wedding ceremony that did it, actually. It was the act of sex that made them one flesh. So that act is something that is beyond just the two people coming together. It communicates something greater than just that marriage. It it actually communicates our union with Christ. And so when we take that outside of where God meant it to be, it no longer communicates what it was supposed to communicate. It now communicates that I don't care as much about God. I, I don't care about how God wanted this to happen. I just want to dive into this. It does not communicate our union with Christ anymore, which is how God designed it. The next uh, sin that, God, or that Paul gives us here is impurity. And this is, uh, this is uncleanness. It's basically, it's, we talk about sanctification being the process of becoming more and more like Christ. This is the opposite. This is going backwards. This is becoming less and less like Christ. This is the stain on you that makes it harder to see Jesus in you. If you are impure, the world can't see Jesus in you because you've got the stain that's covering it up. The next one is covetousness. This is a uh, greed. This is a desire for what is not yours. And, and as we're going to see in a couple verses, this verses, he's going to actually spend a little bit more time on this one. It's, it's idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It's telling God, you don't really know what's best for me. It's telling God that everything that he's given you, all, every gift that he has given you is not enough. You know what's best for you. God doesn't really know. That's what covetousness communicates. It becomes a worship of something other than God the next thing is filthiness and this is these next three is really talking about communication in general and this this word filthiness is really talking about the the words that we're using to communicate a message the next two are are, are really talking about the message itself but this first one the filthiness this is just trashy talk this is you know the words that you're using don't communicate that you're a child of god the words that you're using kind of just Make people uncomfortable. and gets a gives a little edge to them just for fun, you know. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't communicate light. The next one is foolish talk. This is uh, actually where we get our English word moron from. Um, so this, these are the words that that you say that are just kind of empty. Like they don't really mean anything, but but you're really important, so you had to say something kind of thing, You know that you're in a conversation, you don't really have anything to say, but you know that obviously everybody wants to hear what you have to say, so you just go ahead and keep on talking, and what you think you communicated is, hi, I'm really important, and you should listen to me. Basically, everybody else heard, hi, I'm a moron. That's, that's what this is, the foolish talk. And the crude joking is, is the opposite of that. The crude joking is is very smart. It's witty, it's, it's edgy, but it doesn't communicate anything good. It's really dragging conversation down. It's, it's dragging conversation down into the gutter. Um, it doesn't lift people up. All it does is tear down. So you have, you have the filthiness, that, that's the words, that's the, the um, trashy talk that you're using, that's your vocabulary, that's even going into into the way you're talking, your, your body language, your tones, all of that. And then you have these other two that are the, the foolishness, the just not thought out words. And then you have the, the crude talking, which is the thought out words, but still it's just dragging people down. And the reason he, he, he actually has these three words that are all talking about language is because language is very, very important. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your words, your actions, everything that you're communicating is really just a window into your heart. So if you're just using trashy language all the time, what does that say about your heart? If you are just using all these empty words that don't really mean anything, what does that communicate about you? If all you want to do is tear other people down with your language, What does that communicate about your heart? And then he gives us one cure for all of these. He said, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's it. That's the cure. That's the cure to all of this stuff, is a heart of thanksgiving. Do you struggle with sexual immorality? Give thanks to God for where he has you right now. Give thanks to God for his design in this world. Do you struggle with covetousness? Wow, there's a place to give thanks. You know, if you are just constantly seeking after something better, you know, you always need the newest thing. You always need more money. You always need that higher position at work. Now, some of those things aren't bad, you know? Achieving at work is not a bad thing, but if that's the goal, in your life, if that's what's driving you, you don't have a thankful heart. That's the problem. You have to have a thankful heart, a heart that looks to God and says, wow, God, you are enough. Thank you for all that you have given me. Thank you for your son on the cross. Thank you that when I was a sinner, you came and died for me. Because when you have a thankful heart, when your heart is just overflowing with thanks, all of these other things are just silly. I, they just don't make sense. Why would you be tearing people down in your conversation if, if you have a thankful heart, if you're thankful for the people that God has surrounded you with, and you recognize that God loves that person that you are tearing down right now? When you're thankful, these things just don't even make sense. So your next point in the handout is, when you have a heart bursting with thanksgiving to God, there is no room for sin. You know, we had talked about how, how the first three chapters in Ephesians were, were these truths that Paul wanted us to know. And what he's saying here is it's don't just know these truths. Don't just have them in your head. He's saying rejoice in these truths. Rejoice in the truths that, that Paul gave us in, in those chapters 1 through 3. Rejoice in the fact that you've been adopted. Rejoice in the fact that you are saved by grace. Rejoice in the fact that it is your faith that will save you. Rejoice in the fact that you have an inheritance. Going into verse 5, it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he's talking here about all those who refuse to acknowledge reality, who choose to live within their own virtual reality that they have created around them. And we see in here, we we talked a little bit about covetousness earlier, and he kind of clarifies on this a little bit by saying that is an idolater. If you are covetous, you're an idolater. And that's strong language. He's saying that you're worshiping something completely other than God. You may say you're worshiping God, But if you've placed something above him, that is what you're worshiping. If money is more important to you than God, then you are worshiping money. That is the object of your worship. And the reason that that he hits on that covetousness a bit more in there um, is he wants us to understand that God is the only thing that can really fulfill you. Because that's what covetousness is doing. It's saying, "God, God can't really fulfill me. I need these other things. When you fill in the statement of, you know, well, everything would just be all right if I just had blank. If you fill that in with anything other than God, then you're worshiping that thing. And so this is a loving act from God to create reality in such a way that not only is he the only thing that can fulfill us, He's also the only thing that can save us. Because if there was something else in this world that could fulfill you, then you wouldn't need God. But he designed us so that he would truly be the only one that could fulfill us. Because he knew that he was the only one who could save us. Sin in verse 6, says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you. This phrase, empty words, these are not dumb words necessarily. You know, they can be. You know, we think of empty words as just kind of just not thought out words. But really what he's saying here is they don't have anything backing them. They don't have the truth of God backing them. So they can be eloquent. They can be very smart words. They can sound wise. And that's something we need to watch for, is these empty words that that don't lead us to God. Empty words are anything where where you look at scripture, and scripture says, no, no, that's not right. Because God is the final answer on it. God backs the truth claims when we think about this or when i was thinking about this you know we we hear the euphemisms today of you know sexual freedom what is that sexual freedom if we read scripture though it makes no sense we know that god designed sex to work in a certain way and in that way it's a beautiful god glorifying thing but when we go outside of it when we make arguments for why, oh, well, Scripture doesn't really teach that. And then you look at Scripture and it's pretty plain. We, we look at 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 10. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We hear these empty words that want to attack almost every single one of those things in there, and they put arguments behind them. They try to make convincing arguments around it, and some of it sounds good. Some of it kind of resonates a little bit, but when you go to Scripture, and scripture says the opposite. You recognize that there's nothing backing those words. In the end, it all falls apart. And we see that. I, I Think about adultery. Think about the sex outside of marriage and all the fatherless homes we see in this world. The children who are just kind of out to fend for themselves. It doesn't work right. We live in a broken world where some of these things They've got very severe consequences when we go outside of God's reality. We look at gender, you know, we've got all these arguments around what gender really is today. But you talk to any toddler and they know exactly what it is. Yet somehow we've outgrown this wisdom. It doesn't make sense, they're empty words. Then verse 7 and 9, or 7 through 9. He says, Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That phrase, all that is good and right and true. I love that phrase. It has these kind of echoes back in in Genesis of where God was creating everything, and he says, it is very good. Things were made in the beginning very good. Everything was a perfect reflection of God and his, his holiness. We were made in the image of God, and there was no distortion. So God declared it was good, and that's why it was good. And that's what we need to understand is God declared it, therefore it was good. So the next point in your handout says, apart from God, there is nothing good, nothing right, and nothing true. That is reality. That is, again, us getting back to reality. God pointing to this is the truth. This is why Paul spent so much time in the book of Ephesians just reminding us of truth. Because he knew that that's what we needed to, to, to live in this world, is to know who God is and who we are because of him. Verse 10 through 14. Sorry, that's not folding well. There we go. Um, It says, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It just means get to know God. That's all that means. Be in prayer. Be in his word. Get to know him, because that's where we find truth. Spend time with him for no other reason than to just get to know him. This has a requirement of of knowledge in it. You know, some people will say, well, I've just got my faith, and that's good enough. Well, Paul is saying, no, you've got to have a faith that's informed by truth. You know, I know when I've wronged my wife because I I know my wife. I know it like that, you know. The second you've done something and you know that person, you go, oh, shoot, that did not come out right. Right? You don't have to think about it. You don't have some checklist that she gave you, and you got to go to the checklist. Uh, oh shoot, that was on there. You know her. You know your spouse. So what Paul's saying here is living for God requires knowing God. We need a faith that's informed by truth. And when we have that, it brings things to light in our life. Right? It shines light on dark areas of our life, areas where we are not walking with God rightly. But it's a celebratory verse. This really is. You look at the end of it, and he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's a celebration. You know, we're, we're taking the, the goggles off, and we're helping others get the goggles off so they can see this barren desert that they've been walking in. Not because we want to prove someone wrong or prove to somebody else that we were right, but because, my goodness, I want to celebrate coming to know God. I want to celebrate that we've walked into the light. And for those of you who, who maybe don't know Jesus, who, who haven't awoken, this is a verse that's speaking right to you. Awake, for Christ will shine on you. And when that light shines on you, when that, that warmth comes on you, you're going to see some things that you don't like. Even those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, sometimes that light shines and we're like, ooh, I I don't like that. But he promises to walk with you. He promises to go with with you through this, to shine the light on it in love, to point out that, hey, hey, this doesn't work. This is not going to end well for you if you keep following this. He does it in love. Now, as we go into, we're going to be taking communion here. The, the word that Paul used for thanksgiving is the Greek word eucharistia, which some of you who grew up in a Catholic church probably are familiar with the Eucharist. That is their word for communion. Now, we, we differ on how we view communion, but I, I think that's one thing that really makes sense. Communion is a time of thanksgiving. It is a time to just look at the bread and the wine and remember what it represents. You know, we talk a lot about when we go into communion, the, the self reflection, and that's good. I'm not saying don't reflect on yourself, but you got to be able to get beyond that. You know, you reflect and you say, wow, I've really got some parts that this light's shining on that that need some fixing. That that really, I've got to walk, walk with God in. I've got to recognize this reality in. But then you go beyond that and you look at that bread and wine in your hand and and realize you're holding the reality of God's love right there in your hands. You've got his body and blood shed for you. So you go beyond that self-reflection into thanksgiving of, yes, I am broken. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul said, but God. He talked about a brokenness. But God redeemed us. But God saved us. But God adopted us. And so as we go into communion, We're going to do this with a heart of thanksgiving. As a body, we give thanks to God for who he is, where he's brought us, and what he has done for us. Because just like we said, a heart that is bursting with thanksgiving has no room for sin. Father, thank you. Just thank you, God, for, for your adoption, for your bringing us into your family for shining light on the dark parts of our lives. God, thank you. I pray that as we walk in you, God, that we would remember that a thankful heart is not a sinful heart, that a thankful heart has beautiful words come out of them, truth that comes out of them. God, uh, help us to walk. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now as we do communion, we've got the bread.